Well, we are continuing a, a series of teachings uh, on some of the parables of Jesus, stories that uh, had a very specific purpose. And I want to encourage you to find Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 18, where we're going to be uh, looking uh, together this morning. And as you're finding that, I'll just start with a very uh, simple question. Uh, why do you pray? Now, there's a huge assumption in that question, isn't there? That the assumption is that we actually do pray. Uh, but what we uh, find uh, from studies that tell us that even folks that at times uh, say they don't really believe in God or not sure there is a God find at different times in their lives that they actually do cry out in prayer. And maybe that gives us one of the first reasons why somebody might pray. Sometimes we do it out of sheer desperation, right? Uh, we've tried everything else. We, we've tried everything we know to do to try to fix it, straighten it out, whatever it might be. But it, it's not changing. It's not working. It's not helping. And so in desperation, we finally turn to prayer, not as a first response, but certainly as a last resort. Sometimes we pray out of desperation. Sometimes we can pray out of guilt. Uh, I, you know, I'm told I'm supposed to pray. I know I should pray. Uh, uh, I just feel guilty if I don't pray. And so I, I pray because I feel guilty if I don't. Or the flip side of that coin is I, I pray for approval. Maybe it's the approval of somebody else, or, or maybe I feel like if I pray, uh, God will look more approvingly uh, on me. But some of you would say, no, 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 that's not it, that's not it. I pray because prayer works, right? I know prayer works because I, I've had times in my life and episodes in my life where I've prayed and I've seen God just do this and this thing opened up and this person was healed and this opportunity came or this financial need was met or, or whatever it might be. And I know prayer works and I pray, I'm motivated to pray because prayer works, but I want to suggest to you this morning, while that's certainly a good and positive motivation, that the highest, the greatest motivation for prayer is who God is. It, it is a recognition of the greatness of God. Tim Keller put it this way, to fail to pray then is not merely to break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. It is a sin against God. Someone said that the only enduring motivation for prayer is that God is worthy. It is the worthiness of God. Because we're going to have times where it doesn't seem like prayer works or, or guilt or approval or even desperation is kind of a, a waning motivation at best. The only enduring motivation for prayer is that we have a God who is worthy to be salt. And the flip side of that coin is he is worthy and I am needy. He is worthy and I am needy. And when I recognize that, it becomes this incredible motivation, this incredible platform for prayer. You see, prayer at its heart is my declaration of dependence. That I am dependent upon God. I recognize that I am dependent upon Him for every beat of my heart and breath of my lungs and every other thing in my life. Prayer is my declaration of dependence. When I operate out of prayerlessness... It is my declaration of independence. I got this. Don't need you. 
smart enough on my own. It's a declaration that I am not needy. At its heart, the enduring motivation of prayer is the greatness of God, that he is worthy. And when Jesus walked the face of the earth, he modeled for us a life of prayer. As you go through the Gospels, particularly Luke's Gospel, you see Jesus as a person of prayer, that as he walked this earth, consistently he was a man of prayer. He modeled prayer and he taught on prayer. And one of the stories he told in regards to prayer is captured in the first eight verses of Luke chapter 18. And it's that story that we want to look at and what it might teach us about praying and maybe learning to pray a little bit like Jesus prayed. And the very first verse in this story, in this parable, Luke just makes sure we don't miss the reason for the parable, the purpose of the parable. Verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. It's so helpful when he tells us that on the front end, right? Like no mistake about what this story is about. This story is to encourage you to pray always and not lose heart. And then he tells the story. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, sometimes when we read a story, a parable... It's pretty evident. We, we kind of look and say, okay, who am I in this story? And maybe who is God? Uh, and this story, it seems pretty evident. Okay, we're the widow, but is God the judge? What's going on with this, right? Well, this is a parable that we would call a parable of contrast. It's not equating exactly, uh, particularly the judge with God, but it is contrasting. And in the contrast, it's seeking to make a point and an encouragement. There's several contrasts in this parable. There's a contrast between a powerless widow and an unjust judge. Let's step back in time for a little bit, get out of our cultural context. In this cultural context, a widow would not have had a whole lot of power. Uh, she, she would not have had a whole lot of, of opportunity. In fact, is that's one of the reasons why you'll find in the Old Testament scriptures particularly, warning after warning of not taking advantage of a widow. Uh, taking care of a widow is the encouragement uh, in the New Testament. Uh, because very often in that culture, they could easily be taken advantage of. Uh, their legal rights certainly could have been trampled upon. And, and they, they were oftentimes victimized along the way. And so you have a powerless widow in that cultural setting, and you have a judge who, quite honestly, it's not so much about the law as it is about the judge. And so the judge comes into the town, and he sets up shop, uh, and basically what he says goes. 
And he could be very, very corrupt. And we're told this one is doesn't fear God, doesn't respect man. And so a typical judge may have come in and he may have set up shop uh, and it would have kind of been in an open area. He would have had some sort of covering uh, and folks would have been around to be able to listen to the proceedings. But if you wanted audience with a judge, very often you would have had to had some way to leverage your way in there. Maybe it was a connection or most likely a bribe. So you bribed kind of the gatekeepers who was going to allow access before the judge. And so you have a widow uh, that doesn't have any power, any connections, any influence. Her only asset is persistence. Her only asset is her willingness to be just bold and audacious and to keep showing up and to keep pestering until she wears him down, right? That's her asset. The second contrast is between persevering prayer and giving up. The widow who would not give up because persistence was her asset versus those who would give up so easily in the face of an unjust judge, but sometimes even in the face of a just and loving heavenly father. The contrast between an unjust judge with our just and loving God. It's not that God is like the judge. No, he's saying God is exactly the opposite. Here is this woman who persisted in the face of this man. How much more so should you and I be persistent in the face of a just and loving heavenly father? The powerless widow is contrasted with God's chosen ones. He, he talks about uh, he will give justice to the elect. So uh, how will they not? His elect who cry out to him day and night. So all of these contrasts. And you may be kind of tracking with me on that and saying, okay, okay, I hear you, I hear you. But, but. I've prayed about things, and it didn't turn out so good. I cried out passionately and persistently. <laughs> the widow got what she was asking for. I didn't get what I was asking for. What's up with that? Well, let's lean into that a little bit as we think about applying this parable. This parable that encourages us to come before a loving Heavenly Father boldly, a little audaciously, daringly, persistently. What does that look like in our life, in our world? Well, we've taught some of these concepts before, but let me just uh, revisit for some of you, maybe, maybe some new thoughts uh, for some of us this morning. Think of kind of four different ways that, uh, that God may answer a prayer. And, and honestly, let's start with just this one simple understanding. Just because God hasn't said yes yet doesn't mean that God has an answer to prayer, right? Now, we tend to equate answered prayer equals I get what I want when I want it, <laughs> right? But can we be honest? Quit looking so spiritual out there. You know that's what you think, right? I, all right that's, that's, ten, that's how we talk about it most of the time. Yay, God answered my prayer. I got what I wanted. When I wanted it, right? That's how we tend to equate answer prayer. But I might suggest to you that there are a variety of answers to prayer. All legitimate expressions of a just and loving God toward his children. You see, sometimes the request is wrong. And if the request is wrong... 
God says no. <laughs> if the request is wrong, God says no. And think about, think about the biblical examples. Moses didn't get to enter into the promised land. Paul had this thorn in the flesh. He repeatedly, take it away. God's answer was, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Jesus, and we're going to look at this toward the end, crying out in the garden of Gethsemane, if it's possible, let this cup pass before me. The answer was no. See, God is too loving and too wise to say yes to an inappropriate request, right? And we know this, we know this, those of you who are parents, you know you in love, you in wisdom don't say yes to every one of your children's requests, right? I mean, parents, that's what they do, right? We don't say yes to everything. Grandparents, that's a different story. We lose that discernment capability when we kind of graduate there, right? Uh, but as a parent, as a parent, we have that discernment out of a heart of love with the limited wisdom we have. We know that sometimes the most loving answer, the wisest answer, the best answer is no. And if that's true of me as a parent who's just a little bit wiser, a little bit more experienced than a child, how much more does it make sense that a wise, loving, heavenly father might say no to my request? Because as Isaiah reminded us, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. His understanding is so radically different than mine, so, so much higher than mine, that I have to honestly expect that in love and wisdom, he would tell me no. Sometimes, if the request is wrong, God says no, and that is a good response from a loving and just heavenly Father. But sometimes the timing is wrong. The timing is wrong. It's not so much maybe that the request is wrong, it's the timing is wrong. And God says to me, slow, slow down. A classic example, John chapter 11, Mary and Martha, Lazarus, these folks that Jesus dearly loved, they send word to Jesus who's off and says, Lazarus, this one whom you love is sick. We know that you're the healer. Come heal him. And Jesus doesn't move. In fact, he's, he purposefully delays. And in that delay, Lazarus dies. Jesus delayed because he had something else to show them. He had something else to show them, to teach them. It's not because he didn't love them. It's not because he didn't have, have their best interest at heart. But he had something different to teach them about reality, about him, about his power, about his authority. Mark it down, God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. And we, we are an impatient bunch, are we not? Right? I mean, sometimes like the, the microwave takes way too long, right? I mean, just, just get it. I want it now, right? You know, I'm supposed to be able to drive through and they're supposed to have it like right away, right? God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. 
It may be that he's not saying no, he's saying slow because there's things that God does in the midst of a delay. In the midst of a delay, God may be drawing us closer to himself. Because the enduring motivation of prayer is the greatness of God. And that he is worthy to be sought. And there are times that that God delays and he reminds us of that. He reminds us that the greatest thing in prayer is not getting my answer to my request. And I'm treating God as a genie in a bottle. But he is drawing me closer to him. To this relationship that I was designed for and created for and destined for. And he said, "This, this is so important that I'm going to leverage this delay in your life to draw you closer to myself. Sometimes God uses a delay to allow us to modify our request. Have you ever thought you knew what you wanted and then a little bit later you didn't want it anymore? Or you didn't want exactly the same thing? You know, sometimes you, you have an idea of something you want, and then you start doing a little research, you do a little due diligence, and you begin to realize, ah, maybe I really don't want that so much now anyway. Well, how much more so would God in his wisdom delay? And in that delay, not only draw us closer to himself, but in that delay, allow us to see things, to understand things, to know things we didn't know before, to see things we didn't see before. And in that, we modify. We modify our desire. We modify our our requests. We modify what it is that we wanted. Sometimes when we get a little more information, a little different perspective, a little more insight, we don't want what we thought we wanted anymore. And most of us have a house full of stuff that we thought we wanted (laughs) and needed, but we don't want or need anymore, right? It's called a garage sale eventually, right? Thirdly, Sometimes God develops character qualities within us in the midst of a delay. Character qualities within us. Sometimes when we ask, we think, God, I'm ready. I'm ready for this right now. And very often God will use a delay and God will say, you're not ready for what you think you're ready for. There are character qualities that have to be strengthened in your life, that have to be developed in your life before you're going to be able to sustain and carry that which what you're asking for. You may think you're ready, but the Father knows you're not ready for what you're requesting. And so he knows how to get us ready. He knows how to prepare us for what he's preparing for us. And in order to do that, he may develop some character qualities within us. And very often, God uses a delay. And not because the the request is wrong in and of itself, it's because we're not quite ready yet, which leads to the third observation. If I'm wrong, God says grow. If I'm wrong, God says grow. That there are things that he wants to grow in me. Uh, The the greatest purpose is, is not just to give me stuff or give me things or answer requests, but to conform me to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he is purposing to do in my life. And so he's going to use prayer as a tool uh, to grow me into the man, into the woman that he desires us to be. 
And so I'm just going to offer to you this morning a quick, we'll just call it a checklist for growth, and we'll just go through these, and I'm just going to trust uh, that maybe God's Holy Spirit's going to use a one or two of these today's to prompt uh, a little further uh, diving into this in your life. So let's, let's just run through this checklist. The first is very simple, how consistent is my praying? In light of this parable, how consistent, how persistent is my praying? James, who had an awful lot to say about prayer, and we'll uh, look at some of these verses this morning, said, you do not have because you do not ask. Very often in the teaching and praying, there was about a continual uh, seek and ask and, and knock. Uh, and it's, it's actually a keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking there as Jesus taught it. It's this continual sense. Have you ever even, you know, you, you thought you wanted something today, but you don't really pursue it very long? Parents, how many toys have we bought for children that they thought they wanted today? <laughs> but quickly evidence that they didn't really want it later, right? Is there a consistency? Is, is there a passion? Is there a persistence in my asking, in my praying? And along with that, what's my motive? What's my motive? James said, you don't, sometimes you don't have because you don't ask. You're not consistently asking. Sometimes you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. Uh, the, the part of what I have to come is say, God, why am I asking this? Why am I bringing this before you? Uh, God, if the real heart of prayer is the greatness of God, the recognition that you are worthy to be salt, other than God, what am I bringing before you? Am I bringing before you those things that are, that are about your glory, about the advancement of your kingdom, about the expansion of, of your rule and reign in my life and through my life into the lives of others? Am I bringing those things before you that matter most to you? Or is the honest truth, I'm bringing mostly those things before you that are about my comfort. They're about my preferences. That are about my ease. I'm not saying it's wrong to bring those things. He invites us to bring everything. But am I bringing before him things that are centered on his glory, his kingdom, his agenda, his priorities? What is my motive? Third, am I trying to make prayer a substitute for thinking or working? Am I trying to make prayer a substitute for thinking or working? I've always loved the balance in the book of Nehemiah as Nehemiah was leading them to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. There was opposition from without. There were threats, intimidation. There was stuff to handle on the inside. And when the threats were at their height, Nehemiah said, we prayed to our God and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. I love that balance, right? It's not that we prayed and didn't do anything. It's not that we posted a guard and didn't pray. It was both and. We prayed to our God and we posted a guard. We put protection, set a guard as protection against them day and night. Can I suggest to you that we must combine prayer and work without confusing them? Combine prayer and work without confusing them. Now, now let, me, let me press in here for just a moment. Prayer sometimes 
can be a sanctified excuse for disobedience. You with me? Sometimes we know exactly what God wants us to do. But we procrastinate and say things like, well, we got to keep praying about that. It is spiritual procrastination. It's, it's trying to give prayer covering <laughs> to an act of disobedience. And no amount of prayer is going to cover for blatant disobedience. Sometimes we're praying to God for the answer. And he says, the answer is you. I've already gifted you to do this. I've already commanded you to do this. I've already given to you relational guidelines to tackle this. Lean in. Obey. Act. I gave you a mind. I gifted you with this capacity to think and and evaluate. Use it. We must combine prayer and work without confusing the two. Sometimes I just need to honestly say, God, am I trying to use prayer as a substitute for thinking, working, or you might even add the word obeying. Another checkpoint, is there any sin in my life that needs to be dealt with? I think this is pretty evident, so we won't linger long here, but Isaiah reminds us our iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear when, when we come before God, don't, don't be coming and trying to hide something behind your back, right? This smoldering disobedience as if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and God, I'm going to talk to you here, but don't, don't, don't pay attention to what's back here, right? Don't look behind the curtain here. No, 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 no. God says, let's, let's deal with those character qualities. Let's deal with that area of disobedience. Let's deal with that evident sin in in your life because the greatest priority he has is is that you understand his worth and your need that he conform you to the image of his son Jesus Christ and he's going to speak to you about that before he wants to hear you speak to him about some other things in your life is there any sin in my life that needs to be dealt with and along with that how about my relationships how about my relationships with others Beginning for those who are married with the husband-wife relationship, Peter said, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, in the last phrase, so that your prayers may not be hindered. When Jesus taught about coming to the altar and leaving your gift there on the altar. And he says, you realize that there's this relational rift and you haven't taken steps to try to heal it, to bridge it. Leave your gift there at the altar. Get up from the posture of prayer and go seek to make that relationship right. What Jesus reminded us of, what Peter reminds us of, is that our horizontal relationships impact our vertical relationship. 
And it may very well be that in the midst of prayer, God's going to say to you, grow. Grow in your capacity to bridge a relational rift. Grow in your capacity to humble yourself, to apologize, to try to make things right. And that doesn't mean that we can bridge every relationship, and we've talked about that in other settings. It takes two to make a reconciliation. But it means, have I made that effort? How are my relationships with others? Am I praying in faith? Now, I want you to stick with me on this one. Am I praying in faith? James said, but let him, he's talking about prayer, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, this is where I want you to stick with me because there's a lot of teaching out there and there's a lot of TV coverage and there's a lot of of books and stuff that talk about faith. And quite honestly, I think they talk about it in in, in a way that is not in alignment with what Jesus meant, what Jesus and James and Peter and others wrote about and talked about. So let me be crystal clear here. Clarification. The faith that honors God, trusts God's love, God's wisdom, and God's power. It is a faith to believe that God will answer our prayer by giving us what we ask or something better. Now, let me go ahead and add we don't always understand that it's something better. It doesn't always feel initially better. But a faith that honors God, trust in His love and wisdom and power, that as I cry out to Him in prayer, He's going to answer our prayer by giving us what we ask or something better. You see, sometimes there are those who will teach, well, the problem is you don't have enough faith. If you just had enough faith, if you had more faith, and very often it's connected with sending them some money, but if you just had enough faith, then you would have this miracle or that miracle or that. And the reason that you don't is because you don't have enough faith or you don't have the right kind of faith. Here's the problem with that. Jesus said, a mustard seed will do He didn't say, you need a truckload of faith. He said, a mustard seed will do. Because it's not about the amount of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. It's not not faith in your faith. It's not faith in your prayer. It's not faith that you used the right formula or quoted the right verse or said it in the right way or or, or ramped up your best King James English and and said it in such a way that, that somehow now God is obligated. No, 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 no. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith in prayer. It's not faith in my merit for sure. It's faith. It's trust in God's love, God's wisdom, God's power. That when I cry out to him consistently and persistently, he moves, he does things. And and he'll give us what we ask or something better. Because we have a God who delights in answering the prayers of his children. Which leads to the fourth thing. 
If the request is right and if the timing is right and if I'm right, God says go. God says go. James gives us a biblical example of Elijah. He says the prayer of a righteous person is great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. We tend to think of these folks as like super saints, a separate class of human beings. No, 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 no. An ordinary person of similar DNA with a nature like ours, distorted by sin just like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And he said all that not to impress us with Elijah, but to remind us that he was an ordinary person just like us. And that God uses prayer powerfully. It works mightily in the lives of ordinary men and women. Because as we just said, God delights in answering the prayers of his children. He is not an unjust judge that you come before in bribery. You come before it with connection so that you can kind of, I'll make it work. No, no, no. He is a just and loving and wise heavenly father who desires to pour out the best in and through the lives of his children. And one of the major ways that he's chosen to do that is through prayer. That's the teaching of Jesus. But let's look quickly at the example of Jesus. And let's go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there is Jesus is praying just moments before his arrest, which will lead to the, the interrogations and the beatings and eventually of the crucifixion. He's crying out in such anguish and heaviness that, that blood is actually coming through the pores of his skin. And he cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Bold ask. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Now, there are some folks that teach nonsense, like putting that last phrase at the end shows a lack of faith. I'm going to go with Jesus over a TV preacher. See, what the example of Jesus, what the teaching of Jesus tells us is that we can ask boldly. Ask boldly. Because bold prayers honor God, and God honors bold prayers. God is, is not irritated. That's the point of this parable. He is not irritated when somebody, one of his beloved children, come before him boldly and daringly and persistently. That's why he told the parable. He is not offended. He is not irritated by our prayers. Ask boldly. But trust and surrender completely. And those aren't opposites. They're two sides of the same coin. Ask boldly, if possible, and all things are possible for you, remove this cup from me, but trust, surrender completely. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This is what I want us to know. God asks us, invites us to ask boldly, 
while we trust and surrender to him completely. Because we trust his love, we trust his wisdom, we trust his timing, we trust his power. And when we pray in that way, there are two results of that, external and internal. External, God moves. He has promised. He moves in answer to the prayers of his people. And some of you, if we had time today and took the microphone up and down the aisle, you could tell. You could tell of somebody that was healed. You could tell of this opportunity that came your way. You could tell of a life that you thought was so hardened and would never think about God whose life was radically transformed by the gospel. You can tell of someone who experienced a physical healing of a, of a financial provision that just came out of the blue. You can tell about these external things that happen because that's what happens very often when we pray. But sometimes we don't always see that. But God's doing something in here. And he's changing me. And he's changing my heart and he's changing my perspective and he's changing my thinking. He's, he's growing my life. He's conforming me to the image of Christ. He's, he's taking anxiety and replacing it with peace. He's taking fear and, and replacing it with trust and boldness. And God is doing something internal because God honors prayer. And he does things externally and internally. But we don't always see them in the immediate moment. Many of you perhaps know the story of Eric Little. Eric Little was a Scotsman, an athlete, a student. He was a runner. In fact, is he once said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. And if you didn't know his story, some of us probably were introduced to his story a few decades ago on the movie Chariots of Fire, right? Some of you remember that, dun, 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 right? You got to run in slow motion, to do, you know, and it's, it's just this powerful story, right? And little story as he was born on the mission field. And as he came and was educated there in Scotland and he became this runner and he knew God had made him fast. And he was favored to go to the Olympics that year. And he was favored to win the 100 meter. But as the schedule was released, it was evident that some of the qualifying heats would, would take place on the Sabbath. And Little's conviction was that he would not run on the Sabbath. And so he didn't. And he who was favored to win this race didn't even get to compete. But Little's prayer was that God would be glorified, that the name of Christ would be glorified as he went through this process. And he was, had opportunity to compete in a another race, the 400-meter one that he certainly didn't run as much, certainly wasn't favored to win. But on that particular Olympics, he ended up winning the gold medal in an event that he really wasn't so much expected to run and certainly wasn't expected to win. And for many people, that's the end of the story. And they kind of think, well, you know, hey, Christ was glorified through that, right? Right? 
But that wasn't the end of his prayer, nor was it the end of his story. You see, Eric Little's greatest ambition wasn't winning a gold medal, but serving his Savior as a missionary in China. And he repeatedly prayed that God would use him to bring many to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, many across Asia to this saving knowledge of Christ. After the Olympics, he goes to China. But his ministry was not what we would have expected, certainly what the world would have expected, and my guess is not what he expected. After he arrived, the Japanese invaded China, and they placed him along with so many others in a prison camp where Eric Little, Olympic gold medalist, would eventually die. And it appeared upon first blush to be in a complete waste. A complete waste of his fame, his dedication, his persistent prayers. And it certainly was a discouragement to all who knew him and has perplexed some believers ever since. But his death was not the end of the story. For in the cruelty of that prison camp that crushed the hope of so many, Eric Little was a point of light. One camp survivor put it this way, without the faithful and cheerful support of Eric Little, many people would not have been able to manage the squalor and deprivations of the camp. And there are several stories, we don't have time to share them all this morning, but one camp biographer wrote of the eventual ministry, particularly to the children of Eric there in the camp that helped sustain so many in that prison camp. Among them, were some folks that would have a tremendous gospel impact. Jim Taylor and Steve Metcalf. Jim Taylor was the great-grandson of Hudson Taylor. He would go on to grow up and become the general director of the Overseas Missionary Fellowship with more than 900 missionaries. Steve Metcalf went on to serve in Japan, the very folks that had put them in captivity, to serve in Japan as an Overseas Missionary Fellowship missionary. Eric Little's placement in the prison camp at the precise time needed to preserve the lives of generations of key Asian leaders was miraculous and an answer to his persistent prayer. We know that Eric's prayer was persistent because others reported from that camp that by the flickering light of a peanut oil lamp early each morning, Little and a roommate in the men's cramped dormitory studied the Bible and talked with God for at least an hour every day. His desire to know God more deeply and to make him known more fully drove him even in that camp. And his repeated prayer that God would use him to bring many in Asia to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ was answered, but not exactly in the way that he probably thought. When Eric was in Paris, he spoke to the crowds about missing his favorite event. He said, I don't need explanations from God. I simply believe Him and accept whatever comes my way. And what came His way was both glorious and challenging. It was glorious because Eric's life was used for a greater purpose than he would have ever been able to imagine But it was challenging because he would not know the full story 
until he himself was in heaven. You and I can know enough of the story to strengthen our trust in God's design and to keep praying whatever comes our way. But I need you to hear this morning that everything I'm talking about in prayer is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, you and I can come before God boldly in prayer because on that fateful day, God said no to the request of Jesus. No, this cup cannot pass from you. As he hung on the cross and said, my God, he was forsaken so that you and I would not be forsaken. His prayers received a rejection so that you and I might gain a reception. The rejection, the forsaken that you and I merited, Jesus Christ took upon himself so that he gave to us the acceptance and the access to the throne room of heaven that he and he alone had merited. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. It's not just the way you sign off after your prayer. It's a recognition that all of prayer and all of my life is made possible by the gospel of Jesus Christ.